Father in heaven, I thank you so much uh, for bringing us through this time and bringing us back in this place today where we can look across and see the ones we love. It was, it was interesting for a while uh, to, to be linked online, and, and, and maybe we need to do that occasionally, but Lord, it's so good to be back. And I thank you for everyone that's able to be here today. I pray, Lord, as we continue to, to learn our process, that, uh, that in the future uh, we'll be able to have more and more, and the day won't be far off when we can gather again in the ways that we did. But until then, Lord, we'll take nothing for granted, and we will thank you uh, for your love and your goodness and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Bill Nye, known as the science guy, you may have said that before I could say it, endeared himself to a generation of young people by doing short science programs aimed primarily at kids that taught them the wonders of science and the wonders of the natural world. And, and uh, just to make some of you who feel closely linked to Bill Nye, just to make you feel old, uh, that was mostly 1993 to 1998. Some of you are in that group, and now you've grown a little older, and you remember Bill Nye from that context. He had such a gift and such a good way of connecting and, and, and helping young people learn and understand, and a real, a real passion for young people. So it surprised me a little bit. I don't know that it should have, but it did. It surprised me a little bit eight years ago in the year... Uh, 2012, Bill Nye turned up on YouTube with a series of videos he was doing. They were uh, Think Big or Big Thoughts or something. It'll be, it'll, you'll see in a second what it was. But he showed up with some uh, pretty hard words, I thought, for creationists and creationism. And rather than having me misrepresent his words, I want to take just a minute here and show you this video that he showed up and, and put on YouTube, and it was in the year 2012, so about eight years ago, and uh, I'll let you hear his words. It's about two and a half minutes, so just watch this, and then we'll go on from there. Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we are the world's most advanced technological, so I mean, you could say Japan, but generally the United States is where most of the innovation still happens. People still move to the United States. Uh, and that's largely because of the intellectual capital we have, the, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in that, it holds everybody back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's like, it's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So once in a while, I get people that really, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, well, why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean, you, here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. 
Here is um, radioactivity. Here are distant stars that are just like the, our star, but that are at a different point in their life cycle. The idea of deep time of this of billions of years uh, explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your, your worldview just becomes crazy. It's just uh, untenable, self inconsistent. And I say to the grown ups if you want to deny evolution and live in your, in your uh, world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can, uh, we need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. These are, it's just really hard thing. It's, it's really a hard thing. You know, in another couple centuries, the, that worldview, I'm sure, will be, it just won't exist. I mean, it's, it's there's no evidence for it, so. Interesting, huh? Interesting words. A couple of things about that. One of the interesting points, he says, uh, when you love something, you want to tell the world. He's, he, he's an evolutionary evangelist with a whole lot more fervor than a lot of Christian evangelists, isn't he? It's fascinating. Um, the comment in there that, that hanging on to a belief in a creator God holds us back. Did you hear him say that? That's interesting words. But, but perhaps uh, the most striking was his comment about kids. But before I talk about that, let me say this first. I actually have a lot of respect for Bill Nye. And here's the reason. Because he actually carries all the way to the rational and logical conclusion the realities of his presuppositions. So he has embraced, a, he refers to worldview there, He's re, he has embraced a worldview that is based on the reality that the only things that can be known and that exist are what we can by our senses perceive. And that there is no higher order being than us. And if, in fact, you're not believing in anything that you can't necessarily touch, see, hear, uh, taste, or smell, then you're going to dismiss the crazy stories from the people who say they saw an angel or they talked to God or something like that, and you're going to say, well, that's charming, it's delusional, but charming, because it doesn't fit their standard, or at least that standard, of, of measurable reality. Now in his defense. The whole scientific revolution and the reality of, of all of the things we have like air conditioning and airplanes and things like that is the result of the expectation that the world is predictable and that you can in fact take steps and do things that will produce a predictable outcome. We, you may not realize that. We assume that is reality. But in previous generations, the universe was considered a mystery. You had no idea why it happened. And why did people feel that way? Well, when pandemics happened a long time ago, we didn't know anything about germs. We didn't know anything about viruses. We didn't understand it. So people came up with all of these supernatural explanations for things, right? Evil spirits and so forth. 
But as we came to realize there were such things as, as germs and viruses, and then we started to come up with antibiotics, and we started to come up with things like, uh, like vaccines, because we did understand this. And this helped this worldview to gain strength and, and really created an opportunity, a plausibility structure, I'll define that term in a minute, that enabled people to throw out everything potentially supernatural and say that reality is contained within what I can sense with my senses. And that creates this worldview. Now, the fascinating quote, I think the most significant one to me, is this one when he says, and I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world, but he can't just leave it there. He has to get a little bit pejorative at this point. And it reflects a level of disdain he has for this. He says, in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe. Fascinating statement. We're going to come back to that idea a little later on at the end. Because what you perceive in the universe will be a function of what your presuppositions tell you can be there. So he says, this worldview that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. Well, one of the things that strikes me immediately on that is this reality that this is absolutely contrary to the command of God in the book of Deuteronomy. Do you remember this? He said, these things that I have told you, teach them to your children. Bind them on your arm, on your forehead. Talk about them as you walk along the way. Put them on the doorposts of your home. The command of God to us is to teach our children because teaching the children is the key to the next generation. And Bill Nye knows that. And that's why he says, don't teach it to them anymore because we want them in our camp, not your camp. It's actually interesting. My, my son Nathan made this comment from this morning. He said he is attempting to achieve ideological genocide. He is attempting to sterilize you from sharing your worldview with the next generation so that next generation will grow up with his worldview. And isn't it interesting how sweepingly confident he is that it is the right view? He's not alone. There's a lot of people who think that way and feel that way. But again, I don't want to beat him up because on the one hand, I give him credit for consistency with his worldview. His conclusion is wholly consistent with how he sees the world. And this is an important point. Because logic in and of itself is not a determiner of what is true and false. Logic is merely a tool that carries us from our presuppositions to our conclusions. He has employed logic to arrive at his conclusion. But that doesn't make his conclusion true. This happens all the time in the world. Have you seen it? How, how we argue our conclusions and we never make progress? I'll give you a good example on this that happens in the larger world. Pro-choice, pro-life, right? This whole abortion discussion. We want to argue it out here. You're not giving people choice. You're killing people. We want to argue it out here. The problem is we're never going to make peace out here because the disconnect started back here with our presuppositions about reality. 
And until we can get on the same page there, it doesn't matter. We're never going to agree out here. So Bill Nye believes nothing exists that cannot be independently measured or experimentally proven by senses available to intelligent humans. So that means no magic, no miracles. Everything has an explanation even if we don't know it yet. No creation, no creator, just a big bang, deep time, and evolution. It's fully logical based on his premise, based on his plausibility structure. But here's the conundrum. When your premise has already ruled out the possibility of the existence of God, you can't use logic to prove God doesn't exist. Right? Because you've already, before you started using logic, said he doesn't. So you can't use that reasoning to disprove a creator. And in the middle of all of this, we have these words, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. What do you believe? We're spending time this fall talking about the messages of the three angels of Revelation 14. And I've given you a little framework for this in the introduction and in, in last Sabbath talking about the everlasting gospel. We talked about a way that we can understand the messages of these three angels is the first angel comes to, to describe the victory of God. The second angel comes to warn us of the failure of man. And the third angel comes to say, make sure you're a part of God's victory, not a part of man's failure. We'll flesh that out as we go along. We're in the second Sabbath talking about the first angel and the victory of God. And last Sabbath, if you missed the message, go back because it's foundational to everything else we're going to say. And that is the core the core element, the, the cornerstone of the victory of God is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the first angel is all about this because he comes to proclaim the everlasting gospel. And what is the everlasting gospel? The gospel is the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that comes to us as a result of it. It's the, it's the good news that goes on forever. And core to that good news is the identity of Jesus because he must be who he said he is in order to achieve it. And his identity is he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the identity of Jesus. Now, this is that very important moment. You find it in the book of Matthew. Jesus is with his disciples, and he asks the most important question in the whole Bible. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter gives the most important answer in the Bible. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says a most remarkable thing. He says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. So I want you to step back for a second and realize something. 
believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the cornerstone reality of what makes you a Christian is not something you figure out. It's not something you arrive at through philosophy. It is a divine revelation from the Father to everyone who believes by means of the Holy Spirit. So the cornerstone of Christianity already goes beyond the worldview of Bill Nye because in order to believe, you have to believe that there is in fact a God and a Holy Spirit that has spoken to you this conviction. So you see, there's not a lot of room for compromise there, is there? That's the first piece. The everlasting gospel. Now, the second thing he'll mention in the first angel is, is the day of judgment. We'll talk about that next Sabbath. But I want to jump ahead to the third piece. An interesting little part of Revelation 14, verse 7, that says, Worship him who created the heavens. What is it? Let me get it right. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. For most of the history of the existence of that passage, anyone who read it probably just assumed that was a flowery way of saying worship God. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because for the roughly 2,000 years since those were written down, for the bulk of it at least, everyone believed that some kind of a God somewhere, somehow created the world. Every culture, every people, nearly everyone has an origin story of a God who created the world. Why? Well, because you needed an explanation for why there was a world instead of not. And for all of that span of time, nobody questioned it. And you could even go back before that all the way back through Old Testament time, as long as there is recorded history of humanity, there is the assumption that in the beginning, a God created the world. Whatever exactly that meant to whatever culture believed this. Now that sounds a little strange to us, doesn't it? Because we're so used to our society where you don't just go out and talk about the Creator God. We kind of have a double reality, don't we? We, li we have our secular reality. You know, you don't listen to, to national public radio and they make reference to the Creator God. It's, it's just not there. Now, they're not afraid to make reference to evolution. They're not afraid to make reference to deep time or Big Bang or any of those things because those fit the plausibility structure of our time. There's that word again. I'll... I'll define it in a second, but, but the idea of a creator doesn't anymore. But you need to understand that's a shift. In fact, it's a shift that's only about 150 years old. Now this phrase, plausibility structure, I first learned this, this phrase from, from a man named Leslie Newbigin, who is a, a Christian writer. Uh, he died around the year 1998. But he got it from a... Uh, from a religion sociologist by the name of Peter Berger. And what this phrase means, this phrase plausibility structure, is that in every generation, in every era, there are the things that are believable. And then there are the things that are not believable. But what you have to understand is over time, the plausibility structure shifts. 
And things that were once believable become unbelievable. And things that were once unbelievable become believable. And if you'll be honest with yourself and look over your lifetime, you'll see that shift in your own lifetime. Attitudes towards lots of different things. Even, even we talked a little bit about mental health here a second ago. Attitudes towards mental health have shifted, haven't they? From you can't do anything with a person like that to look what a person can do. So I'm not going to say it's always a bad thing, but I am going to say realize that attitudes shift and what is believable in one era suddenly becomes unbelievable in another. So how in the world did the world shift from everybody believes there was a creator God to the day we have now? where Bill and I can speak this, and there's not outrage. How did this happen? Well, a very th interesting thing happened in the year 1859. Actually, two things. The first was a man named Charles Darwin finished a work he had been working on for a long time called On the Origin of Species. Nobody really noted it when it first came out, but the longer it was out there and the more people read it, it suddenly gave people a plausibility structure to do something they'd been wanting to do for a long time. And that was do away with the concept of God. Up until then, it hadn't existed. In fact, through the Enlightenment, through the scientific revolution, at least the early days of it, this belief that there was a creator God still continued. But it was interesting in the Enlightenment, it took a different form, a form called deism. There were a lot of prominent people who were deists. Uh, William Miller was one. We'll talk about him next Sabbath for a little while. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Thomas Paine was a deist. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. What was a deist? A deist was someone who believed, yes, there was a creator at the beginning, but he created the world, left it alone, and went off, and he doesn't really care about it or us anymore. So this was as close as you could get to not believing in God and still have an explanation for existence of reality. But what the origins of species began to do, and over time it began to snowball, was give people the framework, the cover, if you will, for believing everything can exist, there doesn't have to be a God. And as it turns out, people wanted to believe that. And more and more they b did believe that over time until we arrive at the day we're at. Okay, so that was one of the things that happened in 1859. What else happened? Well. Another interesting thing that happened that year was there was this little leftover group of Millerites. I'll tell you what Millerites were next Sabbath. But there was this little leftover group of Millerites who had also come to believe that the Seventh-day Sabbath was important. And they were trying to organize themselves, but it took them a long time. It's nice to know that they had a hard time getting organized just like we do. So it took them at least four years. They finally got organized in the year 1863, and they named themselves the Seventh-day Adventists. And they believed that God had given to them a very special message that they needed to share. You remember what he said? When you love something, you share it. That God had given them a very special message they needed to share, and that message was the three angels' messages. Everlasting gospel, coming judgment, worship the Creator. Now, let me tell you something interesting about them. When they, when they settled on this, as well as the next two angels, and we'll talk about them as we go this fall, this idea of worshiping the Creator God, to them at the time when they read that, they thought, oh, this is a reference to Sabbath. 
You see, because in those days, everybody still believed in the Creator God. So even at the point where they were launching out with this first angel's message, they never imagined in their mind that the day would come when the majority of people would not believe in a Creator God. They thought it had to do with Sabbath and that this reference to the God of creation was a subtle reference to Sabbath in the context of the creation week. I'm not going to say that's not true. I'm just going to say it's not as true as the fact that the core of this message will have to go forward in a day where people don't believe in a Creator God anymore. Now, isn't it interesting, in the very same year that the plausibility structure for disbelieving God in entirety was being laid, the foundation for it, a church was born to counter this godless creationist creed with a very specific message, the everlasting gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means in our lives, the reality of the judgment that is soon to come, and a call to worship the Creator God. Amen. It really is the perfect message for our age, isn't it? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Judgment is coming. Worship the Creator. Do you know that we are those people called to this message at this time? Or at least we're their descendants. Do we still feel that as first priority? This, this plausibility structures this reality. You see, there was a time, and I can remember it in my own lifetime. There was a time when I was young that, that the basic assumptions and beliefs of the church were, were a little different, but pretty much in agreement with the basic assumptions and beliefs of society. But every year of my life that goes past, I watch my beliefs and the beliefs of the larger society get further and further and further apart. Have you noticed that in your life? We're always a little gun-shy when it comes to science, and, and rightly so. And, and here's the reason. Um, religion and science don't have a great history. And too often it's been religion that has been the belligerent fool in the discussion. Now, we're gonna, we'll deal with that when we get to the second angel and we talk about the failure of man, because a lot of the failure of man has been manifest in the form of religion. But we've been gun-shy on it. So examples of that, Galileo. Remember Galileo? He said, yeah, I, I don't think it's the sun going around the earth. I think it's the earth going around the sun. And the church was like, no, no, don't say anything like that because I have a proof text here that says the sun goes around the earth. I don't care what you can demonstrate. It's not true. Well, okay, we got over that finally. That's not good, right? It, I'll give, let me give you another one, a little more recent and, and specific to Adventists. It was a, a belief among many Adventists in the uh, mid part of the 1900s that uh, God would never allow man to successfully go to the moon. And the reason was because sin was confined to earth and God would never let sin off the earth. 
And that helped a lot of our people to be conspiracy theorists on the whole faked moon landing and all of that. But uh, we kind of have an industry not too far from here that would argue contrary to that view. Thankfully, we got past that. You see how we trap ourselves? And we often do that in the context of believing we're being faithful to Scripture. So we can be gun-shy when somebody like Bill Nye talks, and we're like, I don't really want to engage that. Well, on the one hand, there's not a lot of sense trying to engage it because, again, it's arguing conclusions. But should we be intimidated? We're called to proclaim realities beyond the plausibility structure of our day. And that's uncomfortable. But we have to recognize by calling ourselves Christian, we've already put ourselves outside that plausibility structure. Because to be Christian is to be convicted in your heart by the Holy Spirit that a man who lived 2,000 years ago was in fact the Messiah of biblical prophecy and the Son of God. How many messiahs and sons of God have you met in your life? We can't prove it by any of our means, but that doesn't mean we can't be convicted and believe it. And this is the foundation stone of the faith. But do you notice something interesting about it? It instantly raises another question. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, okay. The Son of God. So if I'm going to believe that he is the Son of God, what is the first question that comes to my mind? Who is God? Right? How can he be the Son of God if, if I don't know who God is? And what that immediately does is it forces us to, to the identity statement of God. That's the identity statement of Jesus. What is the identity statement of God? Well, it's the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's God's identity statement. Who are you? I'm the one who created the heavens and the earth. That's his claim. And I want to tell you that it is the unswerving, unchanging core testimony of Scripture from beginning to end that God is, in fact, the Creator. There's no place in the Bible where there's any hint at all that He might not have been. You'll find it specifically stated in 27 different books. You'll find it referenced, just go online sometime to, a, to some sort of a Bible app or a Bible uh, website or something and type in there, Creator, and you'll get so many hits. It's throughout the Scripture. Let me give you an example of a place where it is. Acts chapter 14, now, uh, Acts chapter 17. Now, let me give you context here. This is interesting because this is Paul in Athens. Athens was the place of the intelligentsia. Athens was where the Bill Nyes lived. Athens was the place of those who spent all of their time doing philosophy. And here's what Paul had to say. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now what's fascinating about what Paul says is he goes way beyond Genesis 1 here. 
He doesn't just say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He said he created the heavens and the earth. He created humans. There was one original couple. Every nation on the earth came from that original couple, and God didn't just let it happen. He said, okay, you'll be called this, and your people will be there, and you'll be called this, and your people will be there. According to Paul, God laid the whole thing out. He said, and you'll be powerful this long, and then then you'll be done. It's pretty big. Now, we might think if somebody came along and said that in our day, how far outside the plausibility structure we live in is that? That's way out there. But what's fascinating is this, is not, this didn't upset the Athenians because this notion of God was still within their structure. So they heard him say that, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's conceivable. Now, they are going to get offended, but they don't get offended by that. Let's keep going here. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now catch this verse. This is a powerful verse. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And that's the point he lost them. Now isn't that ironic? Because in our day, the notion of raised from the dead is not completely outside the plausibility structure. But in the days of the Athenians... The Greeks, the idea of a bodily resurrection was totally unacceptable. And it's ironic that this is the point where the discourse breaks down because that's not so far from what we've thought, but it was so radical to them. But I want you to notice something. I don't know if you noticed this as I read it. Did you notice I read the three angels' message here? Did you see how it started with the God who created all things? And then in verse 31, it says he has set a day of judgment. And then it ends with he has given proof of the one who will bring the judgment by raising him from the dead. That's life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Warning of the judgment to come and worship of the creator God. It's the three angels' message. Or at least the first angel's message. Right here. So here's the thing. This first angel's message, the everlasting gospel, day of judgment, worship the creator God. We cannot be flexible on any of these points. There are a lot of people who who go by the name Christian who aren't convinced that Jesus, maybe he was a man that lived, but they're not convinced that he rose again. We can't be flexible on that. We don't have any room there. There's a lot of people who go by the name Christian who have tried to come up with some sort of a compromise hybrid version of how reality came to be. We can't be flexible. Because here's the implications. If God is not creator, then he has no basis to give law. Think about that. 
How do we establish laws? Well, the way we do it in this land, we vote for representatives. Representatives form a legislature. They go, they make a law, and it has authority because we have appointed them for that purpose. But if I just say, from now on, uh, everybody has to wear a uh, Forest Lake Church mask, everyone in America, I don't have a right to make that law. Nobody's going to do that. Within the whole of Scripture, the argument for why God has the right to establish law is because He is Creator. If He is not Creator, then He has no business making law, and all He is is a bully from the outside forcing us to do what He says because we're too weak to fight Him. You see that? And not only that, the idea that God would bring judgment on an arbitrary law that he didn't have a right to establish in the first place, that's terrible. And beyond that, if he's not the creator, what in the world was Jesus doing? That was just crazy. So do you see, if you follow through the logic here, if God isn't creator, then Scripture lies, Jesus didn't save you, and you have no hope. You see how that follows? This is what happens when we use logic to follow from the presupposition to the conclusion. But if he is creator and Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then you do have great hope and you have a message to proclaim because the hour of his judgment is coming. So here's just a thought to reckon. How much of a believer in luck and coincidence are you? Could it be just by chance that a message so suited to our day could have been written 2,000 years ago, embraced by our spiritual forefathers before they even knew that people were going to fall away from the notion of creation, set into the center of our DNA and who we needed to be and taught to us through the generations so that we would stand in this time when the world here needs nothing more than to hear that Jesus saves, God has created, the judgment is coming, and it's important to be on God's side. How much of a believer in chance are you? We live in dueling plausibility structures. We live so much of our life in the worldly structure. We function, we do. We don't mention God. And then we live a piece of our life in the faith structure, right? And I can't help but think of the words, how long halt you between two views? If God be God, worship Him. If not, stop. We did the seven churches in the, in the week of prayer leading up to this, and we talked about the church of Laodicea. You remember the problem with the church of Laodicea? They live in two structures. They're neither hot nor cold. They have their Christian time, and then they have their world time. We can't back away 
from these core convictions of the faith. We can't back away from the identity of Jesus and we can't back away from the identity of God because to do so will cause the entire plausibility structure of Christianity to collapse. There's nothing left. I tell you what, I wish we were as faithful to our, to our Christian worldview as Bill Nye is to his worldview. We could learn a lesson here. He says, regarding the Creator God, it's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe. Now, maybe that's logical given his plausibility structure, but that doesn't make it true. And there's a, there's a key irony here. My dad pointed this out to me. This is, there's a key irony here because he looks out at the universe and it's so complex and he's measuring the capacity of anything to create by the, by the ability of humanity. And he's saying because the universe is so complex, it couldn't have been planned. That's ironic, isn't it? Because it's so complex, it had to have happened accidentally because no human is smart enough to figure this out. Okay, you're right. Granted. But does the fact that something is so complex imply no design or imply careful design? There was another one who looked out at the universe and didn't see the same thing Bill Nye saw. That was Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. He see, he's looking at the same thing, and instead of plainly seeing nothing, he's plainly seeing something. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They were looking for a reason to not have to believe. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So, so they were talking about idols. He's talking about idols in that day. But what we've done in our day is exchange the glory of the immortal God for ourselves. We're the top thing. And there's nothing beyond us. Here's reality. Start with the foundation of Christianity, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Start there and believe that, and then find out who God is. He's the creator, and you will look into the universe and see evidence every day. Start anywhere else, and you will see nothing but confusion, and you will not find God. Jesus came to reveal the Father. We must start with him. But understand this about the plausibility structure that Bill Nye talks about. You can't start there and prove God. So don't let that intimidate you. Now, we don't have to be mean. We don't have to be ugly. But don't let that intimidate you out of your faith. Because it is a system that is incapable of knowing what you know. 
you remember the text? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where does that leave everyone without the fear of the Lord? They haven't even gotten to wisdom yet. Two claims. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God is the Creator. They're either true or they're false. If they're true, then reality is as the three angels say. If they're false, then the whole enterprise of church is a waste of time. There's no compromise position. It's either all in or all out. But if you're willing to believe, God sent a message to a man named John 2,000 years ago that said during the time of the end, three angels would bring a key message for that time. And you are the ones given the message. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Creator God? We're going to add one more piece to this next Sabbath, but, but it's two of the three key pieces that if these things aren't true, then this whole thing is a train wreck. But I believe they are true. And I believe God gives confirmation and evidence throughout our lives of the truth of these things. So don't let your faith go as a result of an argument from someone starting from a completely different place. And be faithful to this call. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Creator God. And by this faith, we stand and believe. God is calling us in this day to be faithful witnesses Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can make no compromise on either of these points. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't understand everything about these points. We have a description of how you created, but we don't understand that doesn't make sense to us. But that's not the most important point. The most important point is we trust you for those things we don't fully understand. And we remain open to your Holy Spirit to bring conviction to our hearts. That the man Jesus was in fact the Messiah and the Son of God. And that back before time, God created the heavens and the earth. We stand on these things not because we fully understand them, but because your Spirit has convicted our hearts. And Lord, as you send the rains to bless us, send also the rain of your Spirit upon us that we would be your witnesses in this day. Here we are, Lord. Is it us? We've heard you calling in the night. 
We will go, Lord. We will do your bidding. In Jesus' name, amen.